Well, it's good to be with you this morning. It's always um, an honor to uh, preach in this Crossroads pulpit, and um, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Obviously, we're in a season of celebration, as Christmas is just around the corner. This is a time when I think it's, it's unanimously recognized that Christmas lights and decorations are okay now. Um, there are some ethical dilemmas with decorating pre-Thanksgiving, which I must confess happened at my house. But it's a season of celebration. It's a season of getting together with your family. That's why so many of you next weekend will be home wherever you've come from with your family celebrating. Uh, and it's good to celebrate because at the heart of this Christmas season is the incarnation and birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we think back to that moment of his birth, there were many people celebrating then as well. We could think of the Magi, who were given that prophecy of the son of, or the king being born and went to see Mary with the child. And when they saw Little Jesus, they bowed down and worshipped him. And we're told in Matthew chapter 2 that they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It was a celebration. You can think of others who celebrated. Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, broke out in praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Simeon. Simeon was so happy he could die. Literally. He had been told that he would not die until he saw the Messiah delivered to Israel. And so as he saw baby Christ, he says, great, I can die. So happy he could die. And you think, of course, of of Mary and Joseph. Um, the, the excitement that comes with giving birth to a child, of course, but, but this had added significance based on the prophecies. And as different people understood the prophecies in different measures, there would have been different measures of celebration. For those who really saw the thousands of years of, of prophetic word that had come from God about the Messiah, seeing that unfold in Christ, certainly the depth of their celebration was greater than even others. The shepherds traveled far. We're even told that the angels began singing in heaven at the birth of Christ. Um, But like this morning in the World Cup final, for those of you who are French, oui, oui, not everyone was so excited at the birth of Christ. As so many celebrated and rejoiced, not everyone was so thrilled. There are psalms that are called messianic psalms. Uh, They're songs written about the coming Messiah thousands, hundreds of years before he actually came. They're called messianic psalms. And, And one of those messianic psalms in Psalm 69 says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Jesus would, toward the end of his ministry, in John 15, apply that to himself. Because Jesus Christ walked this earth and had many enemies against him, countless who opposed him. 
And so I want us to spend a few minutes this morning reflecting on the enemies of Jesus. I want us to look at this season of celebration through the lens of those who hated him. And I think we'll learn something as we do. Not only will we learn something about the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ and what he has come to accomplish, but friends, I think in looking at this season of celebration through the lens of Jesus' enemies, we'll learn something about ourselves as well. And so I've got 10 enemies that I want us to look at. And I'll be brief as we run through them. But the first actually begins hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus was born. And it's the nation of Israel. Hundreds of years before Jesus entered this world as a child, he was hated. Look at how the nation of Israel treated his prophets. You could go through account after account of these messengers from God, these Israelites coming to their own people with a message from God. Look how they're treated. Zechariah, early on in Second Chronicles 24, was stoned to, th- to death because he simply told the people that because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And the nation of Israel picked up rocks and stoned him to death. We could read of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, or of Isaiah. It's alluded to through church history that Isaiah was killed by being sawn in two. Because the message that Isaiah told to the nation of Israel was a message they refused and rejected. Why? Well, friends, because the message of the prophets was very simple. The prophets of God told Israel that they needed a Savior. They exposed their proud hearts to their desperate need of salvation. And so, they were brutally tortured and killed. They prophesied of a coming Savior to a people that needed saving. And honestly, for the Israelites, it was too much for their proud hearts to bear. Immediately at his birth, Jesus was encountered by a second enemy. In Matthew chapter 2, we read these words, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. (laughs) The second enemy is King Herod. Now, think of it. Here's this king in power on his throne pulling all of his political strings. And a little baby is born, and it, it troubles him, the text says. He's got a bit of competition. A king has been born. And you say, well, well, well how, 
just how threatened was Herod? I mean, how threatened could any king be by a little baby being born? I mean, he's probably got a 10, 15, 20 year head start on the guy. Just how troubled was Herod? Just how threatened by Jesus was he? Well, look at verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Troubled enough to commit a mass genocide of babies. King Herod hated Jesus because he threatened his power. He threatened his lordship and control. The the third enemy of Jesus that we see was his hometown. We're told this in Luke chapter 4. You think if if you're, you're accepted anywhere, it would be in your hometown. But we read these words beginning in Luke chapter 4 and verse 23. Jesus says to those who who look at him and say, isn't this just Joseph's son, the carpenter's boy? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, he's telling an Old Testament story, something that many of them perhaps were familiar with in their history. But look at how they respond in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Here... Here's the hometown of Jesus. This man who's been doing miracles and, and mighty works in the name of God, teaching profound truths to the nation of Israel. And he comes and visits his hometown and they're troubled with him there. And they're troubled because of a story he tells about one of their prophets who chose to save a, a widow, but not a widow in Israel, a widow on the outskirts of town. And to heal not a leper in Israel, but Naaman, a Gentile. And friends, as we hear this, we so often read the scriptures, don't we? Um, Just thinking of the theology of it. And sometimes we remove ourselves from the events and the feelings surrounding that time and place. And we think, oh, well, yes, so technically... um, Jesus was speaking on the sovereignty of God at this point and how God sovereignly chooses whom he'll save. And he also had this point of technicality where God will, will save the Gentiles as well as the Israelites. And that's what upset them. But I want us to just think for a moment about this response. It's, it's broad day. It's Jesus, the hometown kid, 
much like this scenario, speaking to a crowd. And he's just teaching. And because of what he says, they become so enraged. Now, now think of the sight. So enraged that they would, in front of their children, broad day, grab this man and throw him off of a cliff where he would die a brutal death. Blinded by their rage. Why the hatred? It's because when Jesus spoke, he cut to the heart of their nationalistic pride. Israel was the elite elect. Yahweh is Israel's God and Israel's God alone. Yahweh saves Israelites. And he reminds them of Naaman the Syrian and that widow outside of town. And so enraged by the, the reality that God would choose to over forego the salvation of his Israelite in, in place of, of a Gentile, enraged them to the point of wanting to commit murder in broad daylight. Jesus encountered enemies in his hometown. You know, I think the next enemy that I want us to think of, still here in Luke chapter 4, um, is quite obvious. It's the devil. The devil, if you haven't been up to speed, was not a fan of Jesus during his time on earth. And there's many examples we could go to, but I want us to look at the start of Luke chapter 4. Um, because I think it, it, it exposes why Satan hates Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has been spending time in the wilderness, fasting, praying, and Satan meets him at the end of 40 days to tempt him. And we pick up here in verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan takes Jesus up to tempt him with glory. Because Satan did have authority in this world to, to rule and to deceive. But of course, Satan is not the ultimate in power. There is one who is higher, and he knows it. And the devil wanted the glory that Jesus Christ had. The glory that belongs to God alone. He wanted it for himself. And so, of course, if Satan can have Jesus Christ the one who is on his way through the cross to receive the ultimate crown of glory, if he can have the Messiah bow down to him, he'll gladly give up temporal domain for the ultimate territory of sitting on the throne. And so he tempts and allures Jesus. And friends, we sit here and think, oh, of, co of course, Jesus isn't going to give in to this. Friends, don't overlook the humanity of Christ. Truly God, yes, but truly man. Tired, hungry, exhausted, and Satan knew this is an opportune time. 
I don't know all of what Satan knew about what Christ was going to endure. But hardship was coming. Friends, the cross was on the horizon. And Jesus knew that to accomplish redemption, to save his people from their sins, he would need to walk through enduring the wrath of his Father. Yes, the crown is to be his, but not without the cross. And Jesus knew it was coming. And what Satan was offering in that moment was, here's the crown. Avoid the cross. It'll be yours. Because Satan wanted the glory that is belonging to God alone. He wants it for himself. And so he hates Jesus Christ. There's a fifth enemy closely tied to Satan. It's those Jesus referenced as the children of Satan, the religious leaders. There were two main groups that opposed Jesus. We encounter them all the time in the Gospels, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, interestingly, if you know about these two religious groups in Israel, they were not supportive of one another. In fact, the, their rivalry ran very deep. Um, the Pharisees were the self-righteous leaders, highly esteemed as holy among the people. Uh, the Sadducees were more of the socially elite aristocracy who, who had some strange beliefs. They denied the afterlife. They denied angels and demons. But they were the elite, and so they were highly esteemed as well. It was sort of the the upper echelon of the social hierarchy. These Sadducees, that was their people, and they ruled from those ranks. Uh, They were so opposed to each other um, as the religious council that if you remember Acts 23, Paul is in trouble. Uh, He's going to be shipped off to Rome, and he says something about the resurrection. He kind of throws this bomb in between the Pharisees and Sadducees, which allows him to get off scot-free because they begin fighting each other. Um, It was common for these religious groups to have constant bickering and fighting. But when it came to Jesus, these rivals became teammates with the common goal of killing the Messiah. J.C. Ryle said, All hate each other very much, but all hate Christ more. It's interesting. We see in Matthew 16, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees came together to test Jesus. In Mark chapter 15, we read these words, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And these groups that could never get along, got along on this one thing, arrest him. And deliver him to Pilate to kill him. So, the religious leaders who hated each other became friends in their hatred for Christ. And we say, why? What united them in their their despising of Jesus? Well, friends, it was simply this, that Jesus exposed them as hypocritical frauds. How often would he point to their religious acts and say, woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites. You're clean on the outside, but 
Inward, you're full of dead men's bones. Jesus Christ came into the, the inner circle of the religious elite. He entered the leader's hierarchy of those who had influence over the synagogue and he cut through their religious facades and exposed them as nothing but spiritually bankrupt hypocrites. And he did it publicly, assaulting their pride. And friends, that was enough to make them murderously outraged. Enough to kill him. The sixth enemy is that of a close friend. One of Jesus' closest friends was exposed as an enemy. Judas. One of the twelve disciples that Jesus chose to walk with side by side. You know, we think again of, of the humanity of Christ and the time that he spent with his disciples. Jesus wasn't putting on a show with his disciples. He loved them. They ate together. They rested together. They served, ministered together. And you can think of the times that Jesus walked with his disciples, enjoying their company serving them. God in the flesh, serving them. He loved his disciples. Even at one point uh, in John chapter 6, we read about that occasion where Jesus fed the multitudes by by multiplying fish and, and bread. And so eager to be fed again, they come back to Jesus the next day. And instead of giving them a free lunch, he gives them a free sermon. And it's a, it's a sermon they, they did not want to hear. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And you remember the crowd's reaction, right? The thousands of people. As soon as Jesus finishes his message, they, they leave. They abandon him. They say, not worth it. And remember what Jesus says to his disciples? He turns to them and says, will, will you leave as well? And Peter's beautiful words, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. But friends, what you need to realize is, is Judas was, he was in the 12. I'm not leaving. You call me what you will. Reject me however you'd like. But I'm, I'm staying with Jesus. An intimate friend. And yet exposed ultimately as an enemy. We're, we're never told why Judas betrayed Jesus. It's interesting though to note that Judas is never recorded in the Gospels calling Jesus Lord or Master. Only rabbi. It was a common title of the disciples to call him Lord. We never see it recorded of Judas. Maybe it's because he despised Jesus' lordship over his life. All aspects of his life, including his wallet. Judas was a greedy man. We read in John chapter 12 that Judas complains to Jesus because of the ointment that he that he pours out for a sinner. And so agitated that Jesus would dare spend money on a filthy, vile sinner, he 
colludes with the religious leaders to put him to death for 30 pieces of silver. The Son of God betrayed by his close friend for a meager 30 pieces of silver. A small price for the life of the King of Kings, but, but greed had gripped Judas's heart. And friends, we know that Jesus Christ demands total control of our lives. He, he required of his disciples to leave everything and follow after him. Maybe that was a bit too much for Judas. Maybe business was going well and he had to find a way to make a little more on the side. And so, Jesus, I'll follow you, but I'll take a few pennies from the coffer here and there. Enslaved to greed, unwilling to give it up to follow Jesus Christ. And so he betrays him. Just as David prophesies in Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Friends, we should enter into the sense of betrayal that Jesus felt. Oh, well, he knew from the beginning. That's why he chose Judas. And so there was certainly this aloofness and he never really opened up. Friends, Jesus was so vulnerable with Judas that he betrayed him with a kiss. A sign of intimacy. My friend in whom I trusted has betrayed me. Enemy number seven, Pilate. (laughs) You know, Pilate tried to release Jesus several times. He knew he was innocent. He knew. Matthew even tells us, um, Matthew 27, 18 says, "For, For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up. He knew that Jesus was innocent And he knew that the people accusing him knew that he was innocent. And he fought to release him. So so why is Pilate an enemy? Well, very simply, friends, because he feared people more than he feared God. We're told these words in John 19, beginning in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Here, Pilate, again, he's not afraid of of all of his constituents. He's a man of power. And he's pushing back against this this angry crowd, this murderous crowd, and saying, seriously, Barabbas is guilty, and this man, I know he's innocent. And so it's back and forth, it's back and forth, and Pilate's thinking through, he's talking with his wife, he's trying to pull some strings. I can save this man's life. I, I can do it. Until he pushes back just a bit too far. And so the Jewish crowd yells out, okay, Pilate, You befriend this king, then you're no friend of Caesar. And flashing before Pilate's eyes, his career, his reputation, his power. It got a bit too personal. It began to cost Pilate 
just a little too much to fight for this Jesus. And it's at that point he hands him over. He feared people more than God. As soon as his reputation, his career, his livelihood was put on the line, fine, crucify him. Before the crucifixion, um, there was another character who entered the scene, and this is enemy number eight, Herod of Antipas. It's interesting, isn't it, um, as we look at this Herod, that we once again see the union of souls over a common hatred of Christ. Um, Look with me at the enemy of Jesus and Herod um, in Luke 23. This is a phenomenal account. Uh, Because... Um, Herod and Pilate were rivals as well, much like the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so again, we see this uniting of, of foes over a common enemy. And look what we read in Luke 23, beginning of verse 6. When, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod. Probably Pilate trying to get off the hook here. Herod was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Now notice this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So here's the picture. Herod hears about this Jesus. He's been hearing about this Jesus. How could you not? The man makes good wine at weddings. I mean, his fame is far and wide. And so Herod hears, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Send him, send him, send him. Because I want to see him dance for me. What can this Jesus do for me? Put on a show. Bring him in, bring him in. And so Pilate sends him along. Look at verse 9. So he questioned him at some length. But Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothes, sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. (laughs) Herod wanted a show. He didn't get it. So he spits at him, dresses him up, mocks him, and sends him back to be killed. So why was Herod an enemy? Well, Jesus to him was a good show. Jesus was his entertainment. But when Jesus didn't perform, he was mocked, beaten, treated with contempt, and for Herod's purposes, useless. If you're not going to dance, then get off the stage. Jesus wasn't quite his genie in a bottle. Reason enough for Herod to hate him. And the ninth enemy is right here in this text as well. It's the Roman soldiers who who participated in that mocking and that beating. Ultimately, we're told in Mark 15 that they were the ones who did the deed of crucifying him. Mark 15 and verse 16, the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. 
They clothed him in purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now, this is actually an interesting enemy because the Roman soldiers, why did they hate Christ? They weren't Jewish. They had no dog in this political or is it religious fight. So why the torture and the brutality and the humiliation? One man puts it so well. It seemed to these Roman soldiers a good jest that this poor, scourged prisoner should have called himself a king. And so they proceed to make coarse and clumsy merriment over it, like the wild beast playing with its prey before killing it. For these Roman soldiers, it was merely the opportunity to abuse a helpless wretch Cruelty because they could. This guy thinks he's a king? Let's kick him. And so the Roman soldiers join in in the crucifixion of Christ. Well, friends, that's nine enemies. There's one more. We could speak of the passing crowds that mocked, the Greek philosophers that laughed, the demons that howled. But I want to just mention one more enemy. Listen to these words. From Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Friends, enemy number 10 is you. And me. In our natural born condition as sinners, we are enemies of God. It's the default of the human soul. The, the natural mind is hostile, is engaged in warfare with the divine and his Messiah. And you say, Me? Really? Come on, I'm no Herod. I'm no. I'm no Sadducee. Friend, I think if you're honest, you'll have to recognize that you are. Israel hated him because his message was of judgment and needing salvation. Herod hated him even though he was a baby because he threatened the control he had over his kingdom. Herod must be Lord of his life, not Jesus. And friend, Jesus makes the same demand for you. He comes on the scene in your life, not as as servant or not as some, some 
philosopher on the edge of town, he enters your life and demands kingship, lordship over everything you are. The threat was too great for Herod and friends. The threat is too great for us. His hometown hated him because he cut to their pride. He saves wretched Gentiles on the outskirts of town, not the elite. And he cuts at the pride of our hearts too. There's nothing you can do to make him more favorable toward you. Doesn't matter the home you grew up in, the performance you've given. Jesus Christ only rescues wretched sinners. Satan hated him because he wanted the glory that only Christ had. And friends, beginning in the Garden of Eden, what was the the sin of our first parents? You can be like God. You can take his place. And friends, ever since then, every human being who has entered this world has been born with the default condition of I want to be my own God. And the display of that doesn't need to be particularly radical. It's just the displayed in your life when you do what you want to do, think what you want to think, say what you want to say, go where you want to go, because you will be God of your life. And Satan demands the glory that belongs to Christ alone. And in our natural born condition as sinners, so do we. Friends, he exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He exposed the greed of a close friend. He exposed the fear of man of Pilate. Look, you don't understand. I'd follow Jesus if not for. But but my family. But my my friend. You don't understand. If I stand for Jesus, but my, my career. And so Pilate became an enemy. You know, I think, the, I think the reason for Herod Antipas' hatred is a, is a common one in our country. And, and let me hit an easy target real quick. Health, wealth, and prosperity, right? We know that one. Hey, come to Jesus, and you'll have a wonderful life. He's my genie in a bottle. If I do it right, if I say it right, no more debt, no more cancer. I think we're well informed here, and, and we look at that and say, bad. That, that was Herod, right? He, he wanted Jesus to dance for him. But friends, I think there's a more subtle sense of this, even in our hearts, where it might not be communicated, we might not write it in our systematic theologies, but we feel it, that God owes me something. Why me, God? Why am I the one with these financial struggles? Why, why me, God? I'm more faithful than they are, and look at them prospering. Why me, God? I'm, I'm fighting for purity here, and why am I still alone? You owe me, God. I'll tell you a story of my uncle. Um, the Lord converted him some years after this, but I'll never forget this. I was maybe eight years old, and my uncle was um, a, a bit of a rough character, uh, hated God. Um, but his hatred took you know, a, a turn to the worse, um, when, now this I can't relate to at all, but when his cat died. I don't think anybody's attached to a cat, but apparently my uncle liked cats, and he had a cat that hung out with him, I guess, for, I don't know, 10 years or something. I'll never forget this. His cat died, and he shook his fist at God in hatred. 
because his cat died. But I think there's a bit of that in our hearts, isn't there? God, I, I deserve a nice life. Herod, dance for me, Jesus. And if he didn't, he hated him. The Roman soldiers, they hated him because his message was foolish. There may be some of you here who look at all of this and say, seriously, it's fairy tales. My friend, there are many reasons that the sinner hates Jesus. There are many reasons that you and your natural-born condition hated Jesus. Or maybe if you're here today, continue to hate Jesus. But I want to tell you that the reason Jesus Christ came to earth was to turn enemies into friends. There are accounts of these very enemies. We read of the Roman centurion who put Jesus Christ on the cross when Christ offered up his life. Do you remember the response of the centurion? Surely this man was the Son of God. The very one who put him on the cross, his eyes are open to see the glory and the majesty of the one he crucified, an enemy turned to friend. Or think of that Pharisee, that religious leader, the leader of leaders, Nicodemus. Comes to Jesus in John 3. And we know you're from God. As the conversation leaves unconvinced. But something's happening in Nicodemus' heart because in John chapter 7, when they're planning his crucifixion, Nicodemus says, wait, wait, wait a second, don't we have to go by the legal requirements here? And they say, Get, Nicodemus, do you believe this man too? But what do we see Nicodemus doing upon Christ's death? Getting the herbs with Joseph of Arimathea and burying Christ in the tomb. One of the great enemies of Jesus submitting to his lordship as a friend. Friends, we could go through the book of Acts and see enemy to friend over and over and over again. You could think of Saul, one who persecuted all those who followed the way, becoming one of the greatest promoters of this gospel. The ones who killed Jesus Christ, do you realize, became the foundation of the very church of which we're members. Enemies turned to friends. Friends, many of you here this morning, this is your story. You were an enemy of Jesus. For whatever reason, or maybe a combination of reasons, you hated him. But that's why he came. He came to turn your hatred into love. So, as former enemies, let's celebrate the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ into this world because he came to rescue his enemies. He came for you and me. So that this morning, 2,000 years later, we can call him our friend. Now, still an enemy? Wave the white flag. Friendship with Jesus Christ is the greatest gift. And I want you just for a moment to step back 
into the shoes of Judas and feel the regret that he felt. Thirty pieces of silver was not worth his soul and the Savior's life. Think of the regret that Pilate feels at this moment. Was the career worth it? 2,000 years on. Friends, the story of humanity ever since Jesus came to earth has been him turning enemies to friends. And if you sit here as an enemy, he's extending his hand of friendship to you. Let me close with these words from Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on the glorious incarnation, this glorious gift of you sending your only begotten Son to this world to be mistreated, to be hated, spit upon, stripped naked, beaten, and killed in order to save the very ones who hated Him. Father, as those who were among that number, we praise You and we thank You. No career was worth our soul. No moment or possession or reputation was worth our soul. Thank you for saving us, for turning us enemies into friends. Lord, we ask that if there are any here who remain against Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.